Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, going back out to the Midwest, we're going to Ohio, and I'm thrilled to welcome on Middle West Spirits and representing Middle West, Brian Lang, co-founder and lead distiller. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Sorry it was so difficult to get on the floor, on the help, on the phone here. <laughs> uh, not a problem. It happens more than you'd think, with the, especially with time zones and all that. So, um, so yeah, let's jump right in. Uh, I first heard about Middle West, I guess it was about a year or so ago. Um, Taste Select Repeat did a single barrel with you guys yep. called, uh, what was it? It was called Stag Smasher. Yep. Um, damn good stuff. You know, high proof, right in my wheelhouse. Um, and uh, yeah, I've been interested ever since. Got all of the core products that we'll talk about. But, uh, you know, let's start where everything starts, the uh, distillery origin story. Sure, sure. Yeah, Middle West started um, back in the early days of the craft movement, I guess. We started in 2008, um, you know, with the uh, likes of Smooth Ambler and guys like that. Uh, we were a uh, single still, uh, small batch uh, company. We, I think our first mashes were about 200 gallons. Uh, we're here in Columbus. I've been here ever since. We're still in the same location that we started in, but we, uh, we expanded that, obviously, over time. Added in a restaurant uh, many years later called Service Bar. Pandemic changed a little bit of our formatting, but it's about to reopen here soon, here hopefully in August. But, um, yeah, we've... Uh, stuck to the mantra of uh, we want to grow it and we want to distill it. So we've been mashing, growing, mashing, fermenting, distilling all of our own products since day one uh, for our brands. Uh, over time, as we developed different technologies and kind of grew uh, our capabilities, we then got into um, what you would know of as co-packing. We, we think of it more strategic partnerships. We've been helping not only uh, grow our brands, our Middle West Spirits, our Ohio, which is our vodka lineup, and then our Vim and Petal Gin lineup. Uh, but we've also helped a handful of other distillers get off the ground and get running, which has been really rewarding. Uh, for us, the big thing is uh, laying up stock, obviously. We've been uh, pushing back as much as we can do uh, over the years and we're just patiently waiting for it to get older and older and older. Um, but we're about 15 years into this journey right now uh, and we feel like we're kind of starting all over, just starting again. Uh, we've been uh, expanding again, uh, adding more footprint, more space. I guess the more whiskey you create, the more space you need to put it up. <laughs> so we're in the process of putting more warehouses up and uh, storing that for the long term. So it's been, uh, it's been quite a journey, but we really enjoyed it. I mean, it's, it's still in here. I know starting 2008, I absolutely right. In the heart of the spirits boom, uh, craft spirits, we should say when you were setting up, I know hindsight is 2020, but when you were setting up, uh, I know you guys are really in the, in the heart of Columbus. Mm -hmm. Um, did you have thoughts of, you know, will this space be too small? When will we have to grow this out or is this space okay for us? Honestly, um, <laughs> as a lot of people, a lot of peers, I would think would say, uh, we had no idea what we were getting into when we first started. And, you know, the, the intangibles of, of distilling, right? Um, how much you actually keep, how much you retain, how much space you need to do anything, um, completely underestimated it. Uh, you know, our, our early goes with it. Obviously, we wanted to start with dark spirits, but we did, as everybody else does, you have to make 
something else to sustain yourselves while your spirits age up. And uh, we quickly grew out of our space. It was a year and it was bursting at the seams. And then we took and tripled that. And then two years later, it was bursting at the seams and so on and so forth. And it's gone that way. Um, I would say probably 2011 is when we realized where there was a, a tipping point for us is when we decided, hey, we can't make enough to sustain ourselves with our current uh, industrial process. We needed to either one, start the acquisition process, which is daunting, expensive, uh, or we can take that those resources and we can go into infrastructure. And that's the path that we chose. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's amazing how much in a fermenter you don't keep as opposed to being in a brewery, which you do keep. So uh, yeah, we, we ran out quickly and it was, it wasn't two years, it was six months. And we're like, Oh my God, what are we going to do? <laughs> so, but uh, luckily we had space to expand. Yeah, that's good. And you said you started off with a single still 200 gallon mm-hmm. mash. So, I mean, single, the first still, I'm guessing probably around 50 gallons or so something. It was 200. It, it, it was matched 200. Okay. The, yeah. It matched. Um, I'm sorry. It's a, it was a little under that. I, we do everything in liters back then, you know, it was a <laughs> German still and everything was metric. So <laughs> uh, I believe it was the 600 liters still uh, from Kota. Uh, so I guess I got to divide that by close to four. So it wasn't that big, but, um, yeah, we, we stuck with Coattail on another still when we did our next jump to the new plant, we just went to a different size and we ended up selling that entire distillation system, fermenters, the cookers, everything to another distillery in Cincinnati. It's still running to this day. Um, so yeah, the small still up front, you know what? I, I really enjoyed working with it though, because we learned quite a bit, um, cause it was a one-stop shop still make vodka you can make gin you can make any type of whiskeys right so you're constantly adjusting valves plates speeds speed uh, heat cooling to make a very large array of products across a very large array of proof gallons off the still so uh yeah you learn quickly what you like and what you don't like by doing that so not that it was a bad thing i wish it would have been larger out of the gate but we learned a lot from it Fair. I mean, I'm, I'm finding more and more as I'm uh, uh, tasting some new products and lo- talking to new companies um, and new to me, I should say, not mm. brand new companies uh, in existence uh, that the kind of in the city, some find a garage, some find uh, in the, an industrial space that's available. And uh, it's not all the what do you think of in Kentucky or Tennessee, where you have this huge open space and all of that with mm-hmm. a farm that's been there for 150 years. Um, that the kind of in-city or in-town distillery is kind of more the norm than people would think. Yeah, especially in the craft industry, um, yeah. per se. I mean, you, you definitely, it, it, it has to do with foot traffic in a lot of cases. Um, people that can get to you easier, obviously, help quite a bit. I, I would liken it to the brew pub model, right? Um, mm-hmm. So if people can get to you easily, you're going to see more foot traffic. You're going to see more people. Um, some of the larger distilleries have some of those capabilities. I would say they don't. They're they're closer to Louisville, closer to Lexington, um, like Old Forester, for instance, is right downtown Louisville. Um, and then uh, their big production plant is also close to Louisville, kind of right downtown, outside of the experience that they've got, which is phenomenal, by the way. Oh my god, 
Um, but it was uh, when I was down there, yeah, I oh, just missed out. <laughs> yeah, it's you drool. <laughs> you walk yeah. through, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, they did not spare any expense. But, um, you know, it, it is nice to be in an urban core for us, for our, our category, because you do get those high touch points. Um, does it make it easier? Not really, especially when you have to deal with stillage, where that's going, uh, and or, um, just the sheer space you need to spread out, it becomes challenging quickly because city square feet are very expensive as opposed to, you know, urban density is obviously far more expensive than farm ground. Right. No, I'm, again, I'm fascinated by it. the last guest or the guest that we previous to you when this comes out is Village Garage up mm-hmm. in Vermont. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, talked to a couple other Black Button in Rochester. And yep. so, and uh, act, act watershed fellow, yeah, Ohio yeah, there are numbers too. Yeah, yep, yep. So, uh, before I forget, are you allowed to say where that first still went? I'm just curious more than anything. You don't have to. Um, I, it went to um, a gentleman that then resold it. We set it up, um, and, and, and I'm, the name escapes me right now on call. Um, I want to say Northern Road, but I don't know if that's correct to be honest with you. So, uh, it is in Cincinnati. It is an operation. I want to say that's correct, but you know, me and names, numbers can remember every number names, not so much. All good. All good. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're with them. Let's, you know, let's go into the, uh, the nerdy side of things. I mean, right now, so right now you're working with the Vendom still, you're, you guys are super transparent about the partners you're working with mm-hmm. at each stage of the process. So you got the Vendom still, uh, space side Cooperage, and I want to kind of talk about each and, um, metal milling so i want to talk about each of these kind of in turn but uh just starting with with vendome so the first couple of stills you had were from kota in germany uh what kind of made you decide to to switch over to to vendome well i i think uh first and foremost it was um we we knew we needed to get into a continuous technology um, that was, you know, rapidly apparent that we weren't able to produce enough for the man hours that we had for the people that were there. So we knew we needed to go to a different system, uh, more to the coffee style still that was continuous that would allow us to increase our output. And um, we obviously looked around, you know, we've looked at a lot of different companies and you know, I have always stayed in touch with Vendome. I've known him for a long time. All the trade shows, ADI, ACSAs now, um, you would see them all the time. Um, then later in years after our start, we, we ended up uh, working with a couple mentors that we trusted. And um, I think that was really the tipping point for us to go ahead and go into the continuous technology in, in a way that um, allowed us to... Uh, increase the capacity of the numbers that we needed at the time. And uh, it was, you know, we didn't look back. Vendom has been around for quite some time. They've supplied the major equipment for your major distilleries for, you know, I don't know how many years it is, but it's generational. Um, so that information share that, um, you know, the technology development, it was right there. And it you know, happened to be, you know, three hours from me. Um, so I could be there at any given time and, and the team there, Rob and Patrick and Bob and everybody, they've just been good to us over the years and they've connected us in the category to people that are like-minded and it's been a, a great relationship. doesn't mean I still don't work with Kota. Like I said, we have 
one of the coats is still still operational in our plant for making our clear spirits. Uh, but we do have several vendors now that we run that uh, we really enjoy uh, working with. I mean, I can't argue with the vendors. Certainly, the if you want to call it this, the the standard as far as American distilling goes. Um, not to say there aren't, as you said, other just other still makers and and such around. But you see Vendome, and there is a, an immediate mark of quality and kind of a known name for sure. Yeah. And with the between the two uh, still systems, do you? find a different style of spirit that comes off or, you know, different qualities of the spirit? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the different technologies, you definitely have a different finished good. Um, we definitely stuck to the coats of our clear spirits. Um, we have a character forward uh, vodka called Oyo, And, um, you know, we distill it to over 192 off the still but the way that the still operates, it allows us to carry forward something from the grain that we produce it from, which is soft red winter wheat. So we're able to keep that in our product and we kind of stuck to it. Uh, where a lot of people neutral out, they, they do big tall columns and you know they buy from much larger rectifiers because it is far cheaper to produce in those volumes. Um, we, we found something that was pretty unique to what we were doing. Um, as far as switching over to whiskey, you know, the, the stills that, that you know of that produce some of the best whiskeys in the world out of Vendome. There's a reason. There's a certain product that comes off those stills that you know it is the mainstream. So uh, you know if if it ain't broke, don't don't try to fix it. So we stuck with that, and um, you know you can see it right off the still. The concentrations, boils are different. You know you're you're not um, since it's continuously operating, you're not stopping and making heads and tails cuts, right? So uh, it runs very different than the pot and the column combination from Kota. So yeah, certainly the, the spirit character is very different and it's something that we have to train on, obviously, as we're teaching guys to, to run everything. Sure, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. And I, I'll admit I'm not much of a vodka drinker, but when it comes to it, I, I do enjoy the vodkas or at least clear spirits that still have some of that character to them. Like you're saying, you follow through with the wheat um, that yes. you're getting. Mm-hmm. So it's not just, uh, as Tito's would put it, it's not just vodka flavored vodka. It actually has something to it <laughs> or a flavor, you know, or even a feeling, you know, behind yeah. it. Uh, so again, not a vodka guy, but I am a gin guy. So uh, we might, uh, if we have time, we'll walk that in as well. Yep. So with, um, you know, I actually skipped ahead a little bit. So let's roll back a little. So when you're, founding middle west and as you're growing mm-hmm. uh you know what did the what did the ohio distillery scene look like at, mm-hmm. at the time you're founded and, and how has it changed over the years yeah it was um it was non-existent really um when we first started there was uh there were uh, there's a winemaker in cincinnati uh that was uh, doing some small distillation on the side i believe uh, Tom's Foolery was starting up in Cuyahoga Falls. Uh, he's making Applejack and has since moved into whiskeys. Um, and then, you know, I'm not sure who started first, but I want to say we, we were somewhere in that mix. I think Don from Otterson's was, was out with his small pot still a long, long time ago. Um, but uh, there are only a handful of us. 
and then uh, it grew. You know, we had some law changes that really helped that. We had a house bill that we really pushed. We created a guild, obviously, as every state needs to uh, for legislation, legislative pushing. Um, we created a guild and we were able to get some backing for a house bill that created some parity with the brewers of the state and the wineries of the state, which Ohio has a fair amount. I think there are over 300 craft breweries and there are, I don't, I don't know if it's this close yet, but I think it's close to 200 wineries, so quite a bit. Um, but they were able to have, at the front of their facility, they were able to have a permit that allowed them to have a hospitality function that would allow them to serve and allow them to have food and allow them to sell retail. Uh, prior to house bill changes, I think it was 214, if I'm not mistaken, I can't remember the number off the top of my head. But prior to that change, we were not allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. Distillers were not allowed to have that function. And it made it really difficult because that meant that in order for distilleries to uh, sustain themselves, they had to go into what is a three-tiered system. And it is a state-controlled three-tiered system here in Ohio, right? Mm-hmm. So we're a controlled state. So you were pushing uphill against um, some larger, obviously well-established distilleries in the state. And, and what I like to refer to as the hamster wheel, once you get into the algorithm and you get to the stores and you start supporting that, they can keep going for you. So there are definitely benefits to it. But early on in the system, we were still quite young and, and craft was not quite, quite adopted across the states. So, um, which doesn't mean it didn't change. The state of Ohio moved rapidly to support uh, the Ohio distilling scene quite a bit and still have and still do to this day. But uh, that house bill change uh, allowed uh, us to have those service functions. And then you started to see the category grow quickly in the state of Ohio because you could, you know, have a distillery and then have a big function on the front of the, the, the place where you're actually serving your own um, material to customers that are having a burger and something. So um, since then it's grown. Uh, I don't think we're quite to 60 yet, but I would venture to guess in the next three or four years, we'll be closer to that 60 mark as far as the craft distilleries in Ohio. So it was pretty, uh, pretty tough road there for a few years. Um, there were 486 stores. And I think when we went in and pitched our idea to the state, they gave us a test of like 28. So we got 28 stores to prove that we could actually sustain ourselves. And uh, we've been doing that ever since. And that is very different now um, where craft is welcomed uh, and uh, much easier to find than even our store shelves from out of state. So, so things have changed rapidly in the last 15 years. It's uh, fantastic. As you were, as you said earlier, a lot of these uh, distilleries that are in cities or in towns rely on that foot traffic Mm-hmm. which, you know, without being able to do much of that would really hamper your growth as well. Mm-hmm. Um, did, you know, prior, prior to the current Ohio distilling scene kind of growing, um, I know you're in listening to you in other uh, podcasts and interviews and such, I know you're a fourth generation distiller. Mm-hmm. Um, so technically speaking by, by the numbers, <laughs> uh, that's fair. I, I'll allow technical. That's fine. Um, but I'm, I'm curious what uh, Ohio's distilling history looked like. Mm-hmm. You know, because again, you have you're pretty rich. close to these. Yeah, you're pretty close to these kind of these states that are still distilling and didn't have much cut off by prohibition. 
or were able to come back quickly, but I know a lot of states were not. So sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no. Um, Ohio had a pretty rich tradition in distilling. Um, you had a, f- a fair amount more uh, DSPs, which prior to prohibition, they weren't DSPs. Obviously, they were distilling licenses, obviously, back then. Uh, many more in Cincinnati, down on the river. Uh, there were malt plants all over the place, uh, distilleries all over the place. And um, Columbus had a few uh, distilleries, and there were, there were more up north. Um, these are legal that I'm talking about, not illegal. I'm sure that not illegal as well. But uh, after Prohibition, very few survived. As a matter of fact, um, some of the, uh, the brands that remained in uh, Cincinnati, uh, from what I understand, were consolidated. So there were purveyors in that region that had acquired the barrels out of Prohibition uh, and sustained themselves for a little while longer, but then they eventually shuttered. Um, one of those brands, one of those names is uh, George Remus. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a history of that to Cincinnati, and I believe uh, there's a long history if you research it. And I think it's, it's obviously now tied to MGPI. It's one of their brands. So very cool old history here. And then unfortunately, we're also the home to Westerville, Ohio. Uh, which is the home of the Christian women's temperance movement. And, uh, and what was the original, eventually the beginning of 1919 and the Volstead Act and Prohibition. So yeah, we, we, we have that as our badge of honor sometimes. Uh, and the irony is, is Westerville, where that is, um, several years ago, finally went wet. It was a dry town up until only a few years ago. So um, yeah, there is a rich history here um, on the positive side of, of, for us, for alcohol producers, but also on the positive side for uh, prohibition, and uh, yeah, it's 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 in many books at this point. So <laughs> fair, I had forgotten that that's where the uh, temperance mm-hmm. movement started. So, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, having both, it's I don't know, I the the having both of them side by side, and having so many counties, even in Kentucky and Tennessee as well, be dry for so long and some still dry mm-hmm. just boggles my mind yeah that like bourbon county is dry yep so doesn't make any sense doesn't make any sense <laughs> no. No. <laughs> um so uh you know i asked this of of uh greg when he came on from from watershed but uh, you guys are in a different area so when I'm curious also what the Ohio climate is like, you know, what, what makes where you are in Ohio uh, different when you're making your whiskeys and, and vodka and gin. Sure. Uh, from a climate standpoint, I would say the first thing is access to grain. Um, Ohio is an exceptionally fertile territory for uh, heavy grain. So corn, soy, uh, a lot of wheat grown here. A fair amount of barley, even barley for production for, for breweries, uh, as well as rye and other things. So grain um, on one aspect is really abundantly accessible. So that's an important thing. Speyside, obviously, our climate here with Speyside being the oak that we can get out of the forests of Ohio. And then being in Jackson, you can get access to you know all Ohio product. So you can have your wood from here, your corn from here, your wheat, your rye, and, and now your malt in, in a lot of places as well. So it's it's pretty unique of a state that not too many places can claim that. Um, and then as far as the climate goes for aging, uh, Ohio gets hot. 
real hot. Um, so <laughs> yeah, we're, we're in between Pennsylvania, Indiana, and Kentucky, and it just gets just as hot here uh, as a climate. So humidity is up, got to be careful. can get too humid sometimes for aging. Um, so you have to be careful with your warehouses and whatnot. But uh, we have the four seasons, just like they do, uh, which allows the appropriate uh, heating and cooling for the aging process. So we have all the tools here um, to, to execute. It's just a matter of putting them all together. Gotcha. So uh, that's a perfect transition to um, another partner of yours, Spaceside Cooperage. Yep. Uh, so previous guests, uh, one or two have used Spaceside. I know the major names usually go to ISC. Um, Kelvin is a former guest on the pod as well. Um, so what is, uh, in addition to being able to use Ohio Oak, uh, what does Spaceside bring to the table for you? Well, first off, the team there is just, spectacular uh they've been wonderful to work with from day one we uh we started working with them right out of the gate as soon as they started their cooperage um they have a long history most people don't realize you know space side is not brand new space side's been in the barrel business for 80 something years uh they're a french company that recoups in scotland for the scotch industry and then they have coopers that here and the team that they have brought in are you know a lot of them are ex-brown foremen guys um darren the uh, ceo there u.s president i believe is his title uh could be wrong on that but he's the head honcho uh darren's knowledge and the team's knowledge on cooping is extensive so the plant that they've built is, is state-of-the-art uh, it pumps out a significant amount of oak and they've given us personally a lot of flexibility on our treatments uh so for us personally we've been um doing a lot of testing with different portions of the barrel for production for long-term, not 50 barrels here and 50 barrels there. We're talking thousands of barrels of, of adjustments that we've been making moves on for the way that we bring oak in and how it's treated. I mean, 50 to 60% of the flavor, right, of your whiskey is from the barrel. So if you're able to adjust it and how you work with it from various aspects, then you can get some really unique uh, products produced. So Spaceside being local made it real easy for us. And when we started with them, uh, we went down and talked to the team and, you know, we started testing almost day one with them, laying up a flat of barrels all over the place. And then we waited about two and a half, three years to make real decisions on adjustments to see, you know, we like this, we didn't like this. Why was it this way? Why was it that way? And, and made permanent changes about three years into that development with them. Those barrels are just now coming of, of the age that we want to go into our, our finished goods. So really excited about the future and really happy that they decided to plop themselves down in Ohio. <laughs> made it real nice for us, so. True, and when uh, when you say you kind of settled on on a profile, what, uh, what Oak Prof, uh, sorry. Let's try that again. What oak profile did you end up setting on? Uh, we have three different styles of profiles that we use, and they're very different depending on the finished good that we're seeking. Um, all of them are uh, proprietary to us uh, for how we handle them. And um, they, uh, yeah, they're, they're not, I will say this, they're not used for double oaking. Um, they're used for the first oak. 
uh, on the product. And then we obviously have a double cask series that we work with that are not related. But uh, yeah, it's various things that we have changed with them over time that allows us to extract a little bit more uh, of the product out into um, out of the whiskey. Sure. And um, I'm just going to press on it a little bit. I know it's proprietary, so I'm not, I don't want you to do have any trade secrets here, mm-hmm. but um, when you're determining which of the three to use, is it, are you able to say is a more of a kind of grain-based approach or? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yep. It's a grain-based approach. So um, for us personally, this is just our, you know, this is our research, our development, um, things that we like. And that's what we try to do is try to produce things that we are proud of. So hopefully we can get some people to like what we're doing. Um, you know, we're, we really focus heavily on the differences, differences between a single malt and the bourbon and the complexities of what comes off that the whiskey and our wheat whiskey is treated the same way that you would treat a single malt, whereas it's 95% wheat, soft red winter wheat, and it's 5% malted barley. So, you know, it doesn't have corn to deal with. It doesn't have the spiciness of the rye to deal with, right? It's got one grain basically with a conversion grain being the malt. So it's very singular in its uh, flavoring profile. So if you were to push a real heavy barrel on that, a real heavy char or something like that, then it will overtake the, the uniqueness of that wheat, where we buy it from, where it grows. So um, it took a while to get those right, to try and see exactly what we wanted to do for our product. And uh, yeah, it is 100% grain-based also where it's grown. So the terroir where the, uh, the, the grain is coming from really affects that product. So it's a lot of years in the making. I mean, that's, that's fascinating. I love when you can not only see, but of course you can taste the, the differences and differences in the profiles. And um, like I said, I won't make you reveal anything on here, but now I'm going to go back to the products that I have uh, mm-hmm. next to me and on my shelf and kind of retaste them just with that in mind mm-hmm. and see, you know, as you said, the wheat whiskey is treated like a single malt. So rather than I'll admit, I may have, when I tried it at first, the, the regular wheat whiskey, the uh, yep. Michael and a, Oh no, sorry. Not the Michael, the wheat whiskey, just the wheat whiskey. Yep. Just the wheat whiskey. Yeah. Um, when I, uh, when I had tried it, I think I, most likely tried it in the mindset of a, um, a Bernheim or a weeded whiskey, a weeded mm-hmm. bourbon rather. Um, yep. So that obviously would color my review or my tasting notes of it. So I'm going to go back and now look at it as I would a single malt instead. And um, I'm curious if I, uh, you know, blind, of course, but I'm curious if it uh, reveals some other things that either I didn't think of or didn't pick up at that time. But yeah. fascinating to see. Yeah, it may uh, it may drink differently to you um, uh, for, from what we actually work with. Um, it's it's obviously not peated, so you don't have the smoke. Sure. But it is very sweet. Um, but it shouldn't be a really heavy punch like a bourbon or a rye. It should be soft and delicate. So, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, you know, going just down the line with with the production methods. Uh, so we talked about, you know, space side cooperage, moving over to the Vendome stills uh, mm-hmm. and Ohio being such this 
incredible place to grow the grains that, mm-hmm. that you're using. So <clears throat> next part I kind of want to move into is the, the milling and the uh, fermentation process because you guys have a really unique process, particularly for the wheat mm-hmm. um, that I, I'd love to dive into. Okay. If, you, if we're able to. Sure. So, yeah. Um, sure. Go for it. <laughs> so, I'll answer everything I can and I won't answer anything I'm not allowed. How about that? that <laughs> that's fair. And look, you're, you're a, you're a co-founder and lead distiller. So if you're not allowed to say it, I'm not going to, I'm not going to push it, you know? Um, so the, you know, the first thing I want to ask is uh, about your uh, milling partner, uh, Menel Milling. Menel, yeah. So Menel, thank you. So uh, how you came to be using them as your, as your partner. Yeah, we, we started um, back in 2008. We were uh, looking for what was unique to Ohio. That's really where it all started. Um, you know, we wanted something to sing. If we're going to mash, ferment, distill, as opposed to acquire, what could we put forward with Ohio? So we were able to work with um, Ohio State's ag department in Northern Ohio. And uh, we worked with uh, Dr. Ed Souza there. And, uh, you know, we asked that same question. What is unbelievably abundant and what is unbelievably unique about our growth here? And obviously there's more corn bridles than you can shake a stick at. Obviously we have a ton of grade one soy here uh, for the tofu market in Ohio. It's quite large. Um, and uh, we had a lot of this cover crop. Uh, this this winter wheat cover crop and uh it was exceptionally abundant hundreds of thousands of acres of this so i was like oh there it is and then when we started working with them we we dove into understanding their many varietals of that that were going into you know big mills and what was one type of wheat versus another type of wheat how they reacted some are good for making bread some are good for making cookies and they're, they're not the same they're very different so what were those characteristics that were different that we wanted to take a look at? And um, we started distilling with them, obviously. So we, we bought them in from all over the state and different varietals. And um, some were unbelievably different than what we deal with today, uh, what we work with today. And, and the vanilla tones that we were looking for for our whiskeys, they, they were non-existent uh, in, in production. So... Uh, we ended up settling in a very specific quadrant of Ohio, and it just so happened one of the largest wheat mills in the United States was there. So we were able to talk to them and uh, over time created a relationship with them and uh, learned a lot about that product. And uh, that was really the beginning of, of a pretty big relationship for us, for the company. And uh, it's changed over the years. Obviously, we've, we've grown past some stuff and we do a lot of our own stuff now. We actually work direct with the farms as opposed to going all through the mills um, for all of our products. But uh, it was the beginning of understanding the agronomy that we needed to that then led into the next conversation, which was the rye conversation, which then led into the corn conversation and the varietals that were there, and then eventually into the barley and malt. And we've made adjustments quite often we don't do them as much today we've really settled on what we like now but for the first you know six seven years of process we were maneuvering stuff around quite a bit 
to, to hone in on what we felt would be good for us. And I forget whether it was on the website or, or in another interview, but um, you did, you were talking about specifically, specifically with wheat, how mm-hmm. the grind size can affect the whiskey, um, especially, oh, it's from the, um, the hops and spirits podcast. Yep. Uh, so uh, can you expand upon that a little more? Yeah. Um, it, it's when we were operating, uh, there's a couple ways to look at it, I guess. Uh, when we were flowering the material, um, which we, we don't do that anymore. Um, the processing was very different. So the way that we actually uh, included the, the grain to the water, and the enzyme activity and stuff like that, um, we noticed obviously it wasn't necessarily an alcohol thing. It wasn't like we were able to produce more alcohol, although a lot of people do believe that if you go to flour, you can. I, I think a lot of that has to do with your fermentation science and whether or not you can take a coarse grain and you know, completely open it up and expose the starches you want to convert. Um, but uh, we noticed different flavors that came off of our product when we floured it versus when it was coarse ground. And a lot of that had to do with the wheat germ that we had in our product. Um, so early on, a lot of our floured material did not have wheat germ in a, in a great abundance. It was stripped uh, from the process before it uh went uh, into the bags and came to us, that material was a, a feature that the company would sell. They'd sell germ out as a, uh, as a health food item. Um, over time, we ended up bringing that germ back in, changing our, our grind specs. And um, it allowed us to, again, improve on the flavor as we saw it and also improve the fermentation because of the, uh, uh, the added benefits of the germs of the wash. So, um, yeah, it was interesting over time as we iterated through enzyme activity with barley malts and or liquid, which, you know, most distilleries use, um, the sheer volume that we had to use versus, you know, early on with the flour material versus later when the germ was added back in versus the barley adjustments. So it all changed. And every single time we did that, it, it drastically changed the, the flavor. So what was coming off the still. So um, I would say early on why we did what we did was because we didn't know any better. <laughs> we had it, we had access to it. Let's get it going. Uh, let's figure it out type of deal. Um, and we, uh, you know, we bounced our way through that maze. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Impex imports premium and rare whiskey, gin, rum, mezcals, liqueurs, and cordials from all over the world, from Scotland to Japan to Israel, Belgium, and Wales. Whether it's Kilhoman, Pandaren, Portiskeg, Glenallachy, Ohishi, Fukano, M&H, Ardnamurkin, Black Tot, and more, there's guaranteed to be something in the Impex portfolio you'll love. Impex also oversees some of the most prestigious independent bottlers in the game, including Single Malts of Scotland, Single Cast Nation, Adelphi Selection, and its own Impex collection. Take a look at their site, impexbev.com, or reach out if you're curious about their offerings. I'm proud to have many of their bottles on my shelves and love sharing them with friends whenever I can. Thank you to Sam and to the team for joining the Whiskering Podcast as guest and sponsor. I mean... Let's be honest. That's what that's what most people do. They like, yeah. start a distillery. I'm gonna 
see what's available to me and go from there. But I was really, uh, I was struck by the, the thoughtfulness, if I can say so, and the uh, purposefulness of how you guys went through, particularly around the wheat. Um, I know, of course, we'll, we'll get to the rise and, and the weeded bourbons as well. But with the wheat, um, in, in listening to you talk about it and reading up on the, the website and, and different sources, to me, it kind of mirrored the perhaps more vocal conversation that's going on with rye varietals mm-hmm. right now, particularly bringing yep. back things like like Danko, like Rosen, yep. uh, and different ryes. But while that's you know equally important and equally interesting, uh, this was really the first that I had heard about the same kind of conversation going on with wheat. Mm-hmm. You know, the the conversation for for my years at least had kind of stopped at you're using either winter wheat or maybe one or two smaller scale varietals, but uh, nothing about really localizing or uh, grind size or anything like that. So uh, this is all to ask, you know, did you, do you think the weeded, the, the wheat whiskey, the weeded bourbons, the, um, the wheat as a grain deserves the same kind of attention that uh, I think rye is getting right now? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I really think it does. Um, I think it, it is always overlooked. It's always going to be the third child to this party uh, between corn bourbon and, and rye whiskey. It's that won't change, but I, the wheat whiskey is in my eyes, one of the best products we, we produce um, for how it comes off the still. It is different than, than most people um, realize what we can become, but man, the wheat on a long-term aging strategy, eight years, 10 years, it's phenomenal phenomenal whiskey it makes unbelievable product but you got to be careful though too because it is also a very delicate product it doesn't have a lot of the complexities if you looked at a flavor wheel on rye the rye is really adjust when you pick the rye the rye varietal that's being grown you can literally go around the wheel and sense different things corn as well four different things you get out of the wash of the corn wheat uh only has a few things so its complexity is a little bit lower it is often used as a partner to corn for you know the weed of bourbons but standalone it's pretty strong and there's there's a few of us out that are really pushing it uh, in volume or trying um but i i think it's worth its time I, th- I think that you'll find it over time it's a very good uh product to work with and the irony is, is it's exceptionally abundant in the united states so it's not that difficult to get your hands on some to turn it into a whiskey it's just how do you process it? How do you ferment it? What are you adding to provide maybe a little bit of variety outside of just the wheat? And then how are you barreling it? Uh, because the barrel, a uh, standard char level barrel that you would use for bourbon is pretty powerful and it can overtake wheat quite quick. So, um, you know, there's all those considerations and I hope someday that people pay attention to it that much. It'd be lovely. And as you kind of alluded to in that answer, the, Wheat whiskey, specifically not a weeded bourbon, but true wheat whiskey, doesn't have the same uh, kind of large scale championship mm-hmm. or championing that others do. You have, of course, the rye does with any number of brands right now, um, and it being in the zeitgeist. Weeded bourbons, of course, you've got the Makers and um, the Pappy and Fitzgerald lines and all of that. But uh, when it comes to kind of large scale wheat whiskeys, mm-hmm. they are fewer and farther between uh so in in pushing forward uh of course you got the big guys like a bernheim type deal yeah. but 
um, kind of besides, let's say, Middle West and and Bernheim, what's in between and around those that uh, people can point to as other yeah. wheat whiskeys? Um, well, I mean, Journeyman does a really nice wheat whiskey called Corset and Whips. Um, so I know of that. Um, and uh, I know that the guys at Cobal, I've seen them do some stuff with wheat. Uh, Robert and Sana Berniker, pretty wonderful uh, people and distillers. Um, outside of that, not that many. Yeah. Uh, Bernheim kind of leads the charge uh, nationally for volume. Um, but yeah, it's I think it's going to take a large scale producer to give it real effort outside of our grassroots efforts in the craft segment to try and drive the category. Obviously, rye is driven pretty heavily. Bullet rye really drove rye's return to, to some form of dominance. And you see most of the um, other large distilleries jumping heavily into rye. But I, I have a feeling that there will be others like uh, 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 Woodford has a wheat whiskey now that's out. Um, you know, uh, in their beautiful packaging. Um, there are guys out there getting into it. And if they want to give it a shot to make it a real category, they can absolutely do it. We're, we're obviously not going to stop. And I, I don't think journeyman's going to stop. We're going to be laying up as much as we can because we love it. But uh, yeah, it would be nice to see it get a little bit of play when it comes to shelf space, right? Um, there is no rye. There's a rye category and there's a really large bourbon category vodka don't even get me started but uh it'd be nice if there's a couple shelves for uh wheat whiskey right like like you uh said before it's it's about shelf space and if people aren't seeing it they're not talking about it absolutely right yeah and you know the more you get into these things podcasts and the discussions and people seek it and find it uh i i think you'd be uh surprised at what it can offer it's uh it's not what you'd expect from a whiskey when it comes to like a bourbon or a rye, it's a unique category on its own. Yeah. Again, that's why I think it's, it's so important to not overshadow it with the rye conversation, but to put it in parallel and say mm -hmm. like, look, if you were a bourbon drinker and you only drank bourbon from let's say the heritage distillers. So all within a few percentage points of each other in terms of mash bill, the flavor can even kind of coalesce into a fairly singular mass at a certain point. Um, you can now look at, at rye and say like, look, you've got Pennsylvania style, you got Indiana style, yep. Kentucky style, all these different things. And that took a couple of decades. I mean, let's be honest, that took at least yep. through the decades to really get. Uh, but I do really hope that the same happens with, with wheat whiskey as its own unique category. And whether that comes out of comparison with the rye conversation or out of growth from the weeded bourbon category, because you could really argue that you could go either way with it to get yeah. to the wee whiskey um it really does deserve more consideration it's, it's interesting it's different and um i'm all for trying new things so i'll probably in that vein now that i think about it i'll probably lead the intro to this episode with uh, a little focus on wheat whiskey sure um that being said we will definitely be talking about your rye very shortly because god did i love that rye um so uh let's see i just want to make sure i cover the base so the uh, last thing i want to ask about in terms of the um, initial processing was uh the yeast yep um so just kind of what what yeast are you guys using 
if you yeah, we it. yeah we um we we propagate our own uh at a dry uh but we do not um we do not run actual firms per so so we're pulling in from Lullaman several different types of dry and we'll propagate um and and uh and run those and some are specifically meant for bourbon production uh some are meant for single malt production um, and uh, we certainly have whiskeys that vary. We'll, we'll, we'll blend the, the yeast across the spectrum. So, yeah, we uh, kind of honed in on Lollaman many, many years ago, and they've been a great partner of ours as well. We buy quite frequently from them. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting process, yeast propagation. It gets to a point, in my personal opinion, where brewers do it a lot, right? Uh, large brewers, um, small craft brewers, often not, um, because yeast prop is a whole different set of skills that you have to really pay attention to. Um, with the velocity at which we are operating, um, we did not want to get into that operation uh, to yeast prop uh, and continue pitching our own over time because, you know, it, there's a always a chance and it's a pretty good chance that the yeast profile will adjust over time. It'll be influenced by the atmosphere and it'll adjust. It'll be influenced by, you know, a fermentation. Maybe there was something a little different in the rye and or the barley that we we're working on for the yeast prop and it can change, right? So we have standardized on these units to try to keep our yeast as consistent as possible. And obviously they're, they're a very good company. So we trust their direction and, uh, We've been doing that since I think 2011. So it's been, I mean, you're, at this point you're 11, 12 years in with them. So you're, it's not even, you're, you're not waiting to see the, the results. You can see the results already of working with them. Yeah. When we first started, we had three different companies we were buying from. And uh, we obviously quickly made the decision to go with them full time. So yeah, that's nothing we're going to get off of anytime soon. Fair if it, if it works, why why mess with it? You got it. Yep, yep, yep. All right. So um, I know we are getting towards the top of the hour, so I want to make sure we hit a couple other things before I let you go. Uh, so let's dive right into the products. Um, mm -hmm. So with me now, I've got the uh, the straight wheat whiskey, mm -hmm. the straight rye whiskey, the dark bumper nickel, uh, mm -hmm. the straight weeded bourbon, so the Michelona Reserve, and then mm -hmm. my uh, my single barrel of the Michelona. Okay. That barrel strength. Um, I have had a chance to taste the uh, Oloroso double barrel or double, double cask. Yeah. Double cask, yep. um, which was delicious. Love an Oloroso cask. Um, and that was thanks to um, Bill Robarge at Beer Drink, Beer Lovers of Wisconsin, rather, on Instagram. Good friend of mine. But at the This Is My Bourbon Podcast weekend as well, uh, you guys had a, there were a couple of bottles from you guys there. And it was, it was okay. good to see. Honestly, that's great. Yeah. And yeah, we love seeing the legs they get right. And where they go. Yeah. It's pretty neat. Yeah. It's fun. So, you know, having talked about the, the wheat whiskey a little bit, I uh, mm -hmm. think when we go over to the, uh, the Michelone. Yeah. So, and I think I'm pronouncing that right. Right. Uh, you're the only person that's ever pronounced it right. I think in the history of the name. So congratulations. <laughs> okay. I, that's honestly, great. I'm sure everyone says Michelone, but like mm -hmm. I, and I, I purposefully listened to the podcast for like there were a couple of things that I was like, I'm going to nail this name. I'm going to nail this or that or that. And that was something I was like, I'm going to get that right. So I'm glad to hear that. 
anyway, <laughs> so uh, where uh, does the the name come from, and and what's the kind of vision behind the weeded bourbon? It's my my rip off of Pappy Van Winkle, right? It's, it's the family heritage, right? No, don't tell them that. I don't need to be sued. But uh, <laughs> no, it's um, it's my my family's last name. So uh, my my grandparents uh, and family who immigrated from Italy, uh, their name uh, was changed at Ellis Island to Michael, and it was Misaloni. And uh, it was changed because of obviously pronunciation and whatnot when they landed. And uh, it was my grandfather who was my personal inspiration for what we are doing today. Um, he, he is since not with us in where he's passed, but uh, you know, back when I was starting, I told him I was doing this and he thought I was nuts. But, um, but yeah, so I, I wanted to pay a little homage to him in, in our bourbon. And it's, I will tell you, it is the product I've worked the hardest on for, for, our, for our company. It's not an easy thing to take and create a four grain, which is technically a four grain, but it is a wheat bourbon. So it's, it's, it's primary grain after corn is wheat. It's the soft regular wheat that has the basis of the wheat whiskey that you know. Uh, and then we have our pumpernickel rye in it as well on top of the, the barley. So uh, we also have two different styles of barley in it. So technically it's a five grain uh, product, but it is a wheated bourbon. But it was very hard to balance. Uh, the wheat to the rye don't like to play very well together at times. So you got very conflicting uh, palates uh, and, and flavors that sometimes can be a little bit more challenging to deal with. And when we first started, it definitely was was difficult right off the still. You could you could dive into a, a true weeded bourbon that had 20, 25% wheat, mostly corn and a little bit of barley versus a very high rye bourbon, which was, you know, 30, 35% rye, corn and a little bit of barley. There, they couldn't be more polar opposite off the still uh, when when nosing and, and tasting. And then you have this product, the Michelin, sits right in between them. And then how do you take those things and balance them? And uh we certainly have had many iterations of this from barreling types to uh, to the product and the balance in, in the product and, and even the product that we were growing for it. And, uh, you know, we're just seeing now 15 years in, we're just getting to the good part for us on what our next 15 years are, which is the very exciting part for me personally, um, because it's been a, a bear to work with to try to get that to balance in. With the latest barrel adjustments, you know, over the next year and a half, the releases that you will see, you'll start to see the impact of those changes in that product. But yeah, it's our Michelin Reserve. It's our weeded bourbon. Um, it's been doing really well for us. Uh, it's one of our, our largest sellers, obviously, as in bourbon is for most people. Um, and it's one that we continue to lay up in, in, in large force as much as we can. So uh, what you've seen there is hopefully going to grow to a permanent age statement uh, of six years. Actually, it's going to. Um, yep. So that'll be the basis for that product going on. Um, and we're not that far off that for having permanently running that way. And then you'll see different iterations of that down the line. Uh, and uh, very excited. We do a lot of single barrel picks of this. So uh, we get a lot of cash drink single barrel requests of this. And uh, boy, they're all super unique when they come out of the, uh, the Rick houses. So, um, yeah, hopefully you enjoy it. That's, uh, that's been a true labor of love. <laughs> I, I can imagine. And, uh, you actually, you preempted one of the questions I was going to ask, which was, um, of course the single barrel I have is of cast strength, Michael and, uh, do you do 
cast strength single barrels of the other products or just um, this one? No, we do them all. We actually do them with a double cast too. If you ever want to jump into that, some of those are pretty in fuego. They're pretty hot. <laughs> they go up high in, in ABV. Um, but um, yeah, uh, we do cast strength uh, single barrels for all of our products, but we don't always have them. So anytime we do, you know, a bottle blend or picking our barrels out of the warehouses, when, when they stand out, we set them to the side. If they don't, they don't, we don't put them to the side. They, they go into the finished uh, blended product. So yeah, we have far fewer of those, but we have a reserve list. And when they become available, we pull them, we'll send samples out and we will do single barrels for everything. That's awesome. I, uh... Hope this grow. I'm hoping to grow this podcast and the community around it to a point where we get the single barrels. Yeah, um, I think we're we're just getting to that uh, probably later this year. Um, but you guys are definitely on my list of who I would want to include in in that first set. Um, as much as I love the the one that I have, um, of course I want to try the wheat whiskey at Castro. I like. I'm a proof for. I am an unabashed <laughs> proof for. Like. Uh, when the when the Jack Daniels Coy Hill release came out, I was like, yes. When the new one came out, that's going to be like 155. I was like, oh my god, who do I know in Tennessee? Um, you know, if it's at like 100 proof or lower at this point, I don't taste the alcohol. I don't feel the alcohol. I just yeah. I just taste it. So um, that is all to say, uh, you know, I'm I'm up for tasting pretty much anything. Yep. Um, and uh, can definitely handle the proof. So I'd look forward to, you know, hopefully I'll snag a sample or two from uh, from friends or we'll talk offline yeah. or whatever. Um, We'd love I, to have I, you in. If you're ever in Columbus, I'd love to show you around and you can come right over to the warehouse and, you know, pick a dram. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm trying to do a, mid, a Midwest trip next year. So uh, okay. I will definitely. Uh, so that is uh, something that we honed in on just like the wheat did the same thing with the rye and we have a very focused area where we, we get this from. Uh, and we know quickly when our supplier has switched suppliers, <laughs> because it, like you said, it's a very, very unique product. And when it comes off the still also very unique, very floral, uh, very, very floral tone off, very high floral tone off the still um, medium heat, but a, a robustness. It's a real um, meaty uh, sweet rye and then the pepper finish so when it comes off the still it's already exceptionally complex and oily so mm -hmm. when we take it and we put it into a barrel it just does what you've tasted um so the still is is really uh where we see if it's right or wrong and um yeah we kind of honed in on that uh about i don't know eight nine years ago uh, when we were trying to develop our rye profile uh, or build it up we were buying from the big guys which you know what that those varietals are we were buying from the big houses that are shipping them into the, the guys in Kentucky and Indiana and Tennessee. And um, it was great. And it worked wonderful uh, for that time for us. But then as we were evolving all the other grains, why would we not evolve this? And uh, it went, went through the same process as before. And um, we ended up honing in on this product, the pumpernickel rye. And we just said, well, why don't we throw it on the bottle? Because that, that is really what it is. So it's 80% pumpernickel rye berry. It's 10% uh, our corn, which is, again, very specific to, to what we grow. And then 5% the soft red winter wheat and then 5% barley malt. So also a little bit of a different 
rye product as well. You get a lot of the Indiana ryes, the 95 fives or the 51 40s, 40 whatever is 44 fives. So we just, we wanted to add a little bit of, of backbone to the rye itself to create a unique product. But the thing that struck me when it came off the still the first couple of times was, was the, just the bouquet, the nose of the floral tones are so high. Um, it was very unique. And uh, then we started with that and then worked from there in the barrel and everything else. So, and also the, uh, the percentages of the other grains. So it's a, it's a four grain rye whiskey, which again is. is less common. It's yep. usually two grain or maybe three grain, but yeah, that's so I'm, I'm curious then. So this is the really nerdy side coming out. Uh, so the 80% corn, uh, sorry, 80% rye. Uh, and then with the other percentages, when you're, when you're dealing with a rye whiskey, let's say compared to the wheat whiskey, which I know you, of course, you also did uh, so much experimentation on to try to get the right profile you wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're approaching those two most polar opposite kind of profiles for a whiskey, in both cases, you ended up, or sorry, no, the wheat whiskey is, is 95 and then the five barley. So with the rye, uh, when you're looking to create that profile, what did each of the other three grains add in turn that you wanted to either elevate or diminish a bit to create the profile you were looking for? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing it did was it, it pulled the sweetness out of the rye grain, the corn and the wheat together. Now, obviously the malt has a little bit of flavor in the product, but it's primarily there for conversion. So um, so if you're looking at the corn and the wheat, which is, represents about 15%, it's not a whole lot in, in the grand scheme of the, the flavoring profile that comes out, but it was just enough to really accent the, uh, the meatiness and the sweetness uh, from the rye which is not a characteristic of rye that you normally consider, right? Mm-hmm. So it was a complement to that, which pulled it forward just a little bit. It's still spicy. You get the spice on the back of your tongue. So you still know it's a rye, but it just was a little bit more of a punch than just the 95.5. Now we tried a 95.5. So we did 95% pumpernickel rye and five, and we still do make some of that for some of the partners that I was telling you about. Um, but uh, yeah, we wanted to beef it up a little bit um, and that's how we did it. And we started at a much higher percentage, believe it or not. And then we brought it back because it kind of started to overpower uh, some of the, the floral tones that you get. Um, so we wanted to back off. So yeah, much, much like the other processes, we went through that and uh, we would, didn't want to overpower the rye, but we wanted to complement it, so. And I'm, I'm glad that you said the profile and the, the flavors in the profile in the order that you did, because it matched up to my notes, which is always really vindicating. Um, so <laughs> when you were saying that the, the pepperiness and the spiciness of the rye is much more on the back of the palate, mm-hmm. back of the tongue hits later, as opposed to the kind of black pepper guayacol hitting on the tip of the tongue or, or white pepper, which I don't know the flavor compound name for, but uh, it was like, that was another differentiator for me to feel like, oh, this is a rye that, um, feels different. It doesn't just taste different. It feels different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and adding another story that I might've told on a podcast before, but that's fine. Uh, when I was down in 
Kentucky for the first time over Memorial Day weekend. First time really doing a, a whiskey trip of any kind. Uh, one of the tastings we did was with uh, Dixon Deadman at the Beaumont. And um, for him, of course, is famous for being for Kentucky Owl and all yeah. the rise, um, as well as the bourbons. But I think the rye has a little more heft to it. And he's since moved on from the product. But um, without giving anything away from the tasting, he evaluates things on how they feel and where they hit on the palate rather than um, tasting notes. Because if you're tasting barrels, you know, barrel by barrel, that's great for the barrel. But as soon as you put it into a, a blend or you blend barrels together, it's no, the individual tasting notes don't matter anymore. It's yeah. now what the blend happens. So knowing where it hits and seeing where the pumpernickel rye hit, as opposed to uh, otherwise that I've tasted recently, let's say it was a fascinating experience to put them side by side that way. No, thanks. That's great. Yeah. That's my belief as well. Um, I think it's about balance too. Um, we obviously have different regions of the mouth that we look at when we're doing barrel selects for blending, um, front of the palate, back of the palate, finish, lingering, sharpness, things like that. And um, yeah, with, with the pumpernickel rye, it, it's a really unique rye. Um, and not true rye lovers, maybe it, it's, it question, they question it a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, I would say it wasn't because we knew exactly what we were going after when we got the, the seed. It was a very unique opportunity that we found as we were doing our development and then we just honed in on it and tried to work with it a little bit more. So yeah, it's I, I do the same thing when we do our tasting. It's about how it feels, where it hits, um, and how do those things linger, and what's the balance in the whiskey, which is what we are ultimately looking to do. Fantastic. As I said, the I could feel and taste the purposefulness behind things, and I think that's a real thing some people think it's imagined but um for me i can you know you when you can taste the passion behind something and the purpose mm -hmm. behind it for me that just means a little more to the to the overall experience um so uh good transition into the most recent line extension that you guys have had which is that the double barrel editions yep um, so as I said, I got to try the Oloroso, but you mentioned you've got a couple of others. Uh, so uh, let's just dive in. What um, kind of initiated you going into the double barreling and uh, what's the vision for it? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, we started double barreling back in 2011 and 12. So we've been working on it for some time. Um, I think the love or the passion uh, started with the wheat whiskey. Um, as it was very unique and soft that it could really use a little bit more emphasis on certain portions of the whiskey. So um, we started to look at that offering because honestly, I, I love scotch. Um, actually, I like all spirits, unfortunately. Um, I like anything that's barrel aged, tequilas, brandies. I just love the complexities in them. And I do love scotches, especially um, single barrel scotches, uh, you know, stuff you can't get here. If you go over there and you go to a collector's area where you can buy, I mean, they'll open up a treasure trove of stuff that has nothing but a white label on it. And it was from a barrel that was, and I'm in a sherry cask 
1987 and there's only 200 bottles and that was it. No, granted they're expensive as hell, but uh, I have had my opportunity in my life to experience some of those. And um, I really found them to be pretty unique. So, um, you know, three, four years into production, we really started hammering on that pretty hard. And how do we focus on the Olorosa wheat first? And that was our first uh, uh, step into double casking. And it was interesting. You know, you went through and we found our methods for doing it. Um, it wasn't just throwing a whiskey in any random cask, as we found out, because that's what we tried. And um, over time, uh, we found some suppliers. That was another issue. Supply is a challenge. Uh, so we found some suppliers that could be consistent with getting us barrels. And then we, we mated essentially the, the post-aged whiskeys with a double cask offering uh, that complemented it once again for balance. Now we've, we've tried a lot and we've blended out a lot of stuff that didn't work uh, in our eyes. It was fine for a blend, but you know, wasn't quite right for uh, being a single barrel or anything like that, which is what we're always trying to do, right? Um, if we could do all single barrels in this world, you know, wow, that'd be great. But, uh, you know, um, we were able to uh, create an entire lineup in, in the earlier double cast series actually under the Ohio brand name. So Ohio was our parent, or wasn't our parent, our parent company's Midwest Spirits. Ohio was the brand that we had everything in. And that was vodkas, the whiskeys and whatnot. And, and as we grew up in the category, we recognized that that was going to be exceptionally hard um, long-term. So we split the brands out. The, uh, the whiskeys took the parent name, Middle West. Ohio uh, stayed in the clear spirits, predominantly in the vodka category. And then we created other categories for gin, like Vim and Petal. And then we have a new product coming out in the gin category here soon that's gonna be very similar to the Vim and Petal as far as the naming goes. But, um, you know, we, we made this flip into the double cast collection out of what was a sherry bourbon uh, base and an Olorosa wheat base. And those were kind of our samples. And there's only a few, like four or five uh, iterations of that back when it was a while. When we switched to Middle West, we said, okay, we dipped our toes in this, you know, we made 60 barrels here. We made, you know, whatever barrels there. Why don't we get serious? and really go after a double cast collection. And um, that's kind of what was born of the new profile. So I know you have it there and I know we're on the radio, but the bottle changed. So we went to a new profile, more like a hybrid between an American style whiskey bottle and a scotch bottle, if you look closely. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we gave the label a little bit more of the scotch treatment right? As opposed to American whiskey where it's white and looks like a single barrel label from over there. Um, and then we will mature uh, our wheat whiskey then goes into Olorosa sherry casks. And there's a very specific sherry that we buy, uh, sherry or Olorosa barrel that we buy for that. Um, there is a very specific, uh, I'm in a sherry cask that we buy for our Michael and Reserve bourbon. And we flip those into a double casking. And this past year was the first go of our port barrel. So now we have the ported pumpernickel rye double cast collection as well as it out. So, so we created a whole category that is permanent as opposed to ad hoc. One's, one's here, two's there. Every year we have these releases coming off this double cast collection. And 
um, they just keep getting better. And, and over time, their age is going to go up. The difference that we feel with ours is that we're taking the ages up on the um, on the Spanish uh, Solera side or the double casking side, where a lot of uh, double casting, as you'll see, will be three months, six months, maybe a year. We're pushing to two years beyond on that additional casking to try and, you know, uh, add some real power from that double cask. Um, we've, we've definitely, uh, well, we thought we ruined it <laughs> at one point in time with the, uh, we did that with the, uh, the, uh, ported pumpernickel. It was overpowering, way overpowering. When we, we got beyond a year, a year and a half, uh, we we thought we literally ruined the whiskey and we said, well, well we've got time, right? That's what we've got in this whiskey world, hopefully. So we let it sit. And then we watched it and watched it change because it will change and it balanced itself out. And the, the sharpness or the dryness or tartness that you would get from those barrels mellowed. And then we did go through filtration on these to try and pull a little bit more of the tannins out um, because uh, they were ridiculously tannic from the uh, pork casks and cherry casks. So we've been learning along the way uh, and making adjustments and we're, we're into batch two and batch three on these now, and they will be consistently coming off uh, the uh, the production house. So, yeah, that's our double cast collection. That's kind of where it was born from and uh, where it's going. I I love it. Uh, like I said, I got to try the Oloroso. I haven't tried the others, but the, the uh, Porter Dry sounds right up my alley for sure. Um, I want to ask a question that I think I last asked it was a while ago. It was like uh, with Jesse Parker from Doc Swinson's and it, it regards. So let me rephrase it, actually. Let me reframe it. Also big Scotch fan, mm-hmm. uh, especially the single barrels. And, uh, and when you get an independent bottler who does a really good job or a distillery that does a good job with their own stuff too, like Highland Park single barrel from Highland Park, mm-hmm. they happen to be my favorite Scotch distillery. So they can be as good or even better than an independent bottler doing the same. So that aside, um, there's a tradition of, of finishing scotches in, in a wine barrel or a um, fortified wine barrel or sherry barrel. Uh, and American whiskeys are quite a bit behind that in sure. terms of just scale of finishing them in, um, in port or sherry or wine, let alone toasted barrels sometimes, you know, that was a craze for a year or two. So uh, I'm, you did allude to this a bit. I just want to probe a little bit deeper in um, the kind of challenges you faced in trying to, to balance an American whiskey with a finishing. So uh, for example, with the wheat whiskey, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we talked about earlier, it's a very, it's a soft profile. It's one that is uh, delicious, but can also be easily overtaken. Mm-hmm. Um, yours in particular at Middle West is single a single malt style thought process with it. Uh, yep. So when you were when you were trying to figure out what paired best, um, what what looked like success, and what looked like. Uh, failure and uh, particularly as as it goes to the port of rye that you were talking about um 
I haven't heard many cases where things kind of come around again to be better after they've kind of gone off the rails. So was that an experience that you had with the bourbon and the wheat whiskey as well? I know I just threw a lot at you, but. Yeah, no, I, I would say with the wheat for sure, when we first started, um, we were able to supply the barrels for the, uh, the wheat product for the double casking out of Ohio. There was a, a um, Oloroso product that was Ohio based um, that we were able to get our handful of barrels on, uh, our hands on a handful of barrels, let's just say. The, um, I, I guess the education up front was we didn't do a whole lot, right? It's not like we were laying up thousands of barrels of this stuff. We, we started with a little bit and uh, we watched it over time. We pull samples every you know, 90 days through heating seasons and cycles. And um, we watched it change and we saw all those changes and we noted them obviously um, and how off the rails they can go. And we didn't start with just one specific product type from on the Sherry side. We, we didn't land on all our side of the gate and said, Hey, this is exactly what's going to work. We had other barrels that we were playing with at the time. It just so happened that the wheat worked best with that one with the El Rosso. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was education. We knew we wanted to get into it. And, and I think where American whiskeys are a little different is that you have scotches that are in primarily second fill casks, right? So they're primarily barrel aged scotches in a moderate climate, pretty consistent climate, um, and primarily using barrels from the United States on, on the bourbon and the rye side, right? for something that has already been pretty extracted from tannin side, from a vanillin side, from oxidation, those barrels have gone through a lot. So um, you take a single malt, uh, which again, one product doesn't have all those complexities of all those other things. And you put it into a barrel that, um, you know, this is at least our theory, you put it into a barrel that uh, has been extracted, so to speak, uh, and then they double cast there. Uh, and oftentimes they just go ahead and they go right forward with a second filling of the sherry cask uh, that that whiskey never saw uh, a barrel that would have been reconstituted from the United States in the bourbon market. So, and that sherry cask wasn't charred, right? So it's interesting to see what happens to those and what the outcome can be from those products. So when we were thinking about the Oloroso, we're in, you know, charred barrels day one, right? Out of the gate to be, you know, the American whiskey that we wanted. We wanted to start with a char level, fresh oak. So taking that and balancing it with something else was uh, obviously in theory a little bit, uh, uh, we thought we knew we were getting into when we started. And uh, we quickly realized we didn't know <laughs> that how it was going to change, but rather than, um, you know, not, not necessarily giving up or pushing that project to the side, we just let it go. And again, we have time. So we went through that with, I think, four different types early on in that wheat uh, vein. And uh, we honed in on one, and then we honed in on our process. And then we said, boy, would it be nice if we did that to a bourbon? Well, bourbon's in a char four barrel. Right. So what stood up to that? What could hammer that uh, from a standpoint of actually adding value to the whiskey? And that was the sherry. And the sherry is really 
powerful the sherry the casks that we get for that um and it you know it, it doesn't overpower the bourbon but it does complement it chocolate and cherry notes come out pretty heavily in the in that product and then we did the same on the on the port side although i would say the 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 least amount of education on that double casking for us personally is the uh, ported side of the business, but we're quickly learning. So, fair enough. Well, I think I have run my gamut of questions. Uh, just one very quick one to ask, the last one, which is: there is a cat on your website. Oh yeah, thumbs. And I have to ask <laughs> thumb, thumbs, thumbs, and Lebowski. I <laughs> uh, love it. Are they uh, distillery cats or just, you know, around cats? So at one point in time, they were distillery cats. They are warehouse cats. Um, they did their job too. Uh, they would do exactly as we asked of them. They would bring the bounty in every morning, oftentimes half dead, which was great. Um, but uh, yeah, over time we had, a, we had an office manager that loved them a lot and was secretly and quietly feeding them. So if you want a distillery cat, you shouldn't necessarily feed it if you want it to do its job. And uh, it about a year of that <laughs> was all over. They just lay in the office afterwards. So they pretty much just lay in here and look at us now. They're not really functional as far as catching mice or anything like that, but they're great. We had Lebowski and Thumbs. They're uh, polydactyls. They got real big hands and they used to be really good at taking out vermin, but not so much anymore. Uh, I was going to make a joke on that, but that's, that's all right. I think I'll leave it just there. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, you know, Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk through this. I'm really excited for, uh, for, to try to retry, I should say the Middle West lineup uh, that I've got in front of me uh, to put out some of the reviews that I've been writing about it and uh We'll tease a little bit that you guys are going to have uh, some expansion announcements coming up in the next couple of months. Yep, next couple of months. Yep, some changes here. Yeah. So, yeah, we have to. We need more warehouses, unfortunately. So, never a bad thing. Never a bad never thing. Bad thing. <laughs> All right. So, as we close out, uh, where can people find you and Middle West Spirits? Um, well, obviously we're sold across the state of Ohio in a pretty broad way. Um, we're in 40 states, um, 39 outside of Ohio, obviously. Our website was literally just updated before this call with the new distributors in the states that we're in. So you can find us through those distributors and the, and the retail outlets as well. So we're not international yet, but hopefully we'll be doing that here very soon as well. Fantastic. And uh, I'll be sure to put all um, you know social media links and uh, links to the website in the show notes for this episode. Uh, Ryan, hang on with me for a second after we finish recording. And uh, again, thanks so much for listening. Definitely check out Middle West if they're nearby you or if you need someone to mule for you, figure it out. And it's been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you.